0: From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you are listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's December 16th, 2015. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. This week we're featuring a conversation with Hungarian filmmaker Laszlo Nemes, whose debut feature, Son of Saul, opens in select theaters this weekend. The Holocaust drama, which won the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival, screened in the 53rd New York Film Festival earlier this year where the director joined the film's star for one of our NYFF Live Talks, which are sponsored by HBO. But before we go to that conversation, we wanted to share an excerpt from a recent free talk with our very own director of programming, Dennis Lim, whose new book, David Lynch, The Man from Another Place, is now available at select bookstores and on Amazon. The New York Times Book Review described it as a thoughtful, energetic foray into the style, craftsmanship, and meaning of David Lynch's films. And in addition to critics, filmmakers have also sung the book's praises, with John Waters calling it a very well-written cinema therapy session on the career of David Lynch. And Guy Madden calling it the last word on Lynch. Dennis Lim recently joined Village Voice film critic Melissa Anderson to talk about the book. The event took place a few days before the opening of our Lynch-Revett series, which pairs some of David Lynch's best-known films with those of the iconic French filmmaker Jacques Revett. The unique all-35mm series continues through December 22nd. Let's go now to an excerpt from Dennis Lim's conversation with Melissa Anderson. For a transcript of the entire discussion, head over to filmcomment.com. When
1: you were at the Cannes Film Festival in 2001, where Mulholland Drive had its world premiere you saw it and then immediately returned to somewhere in the Palais de Festival to see it again for a second time. I think maybe there were no more than 20 minutes in between. So, and it's precisely that passion and the erudition which, which makes this book so extraordinary. So I will now turn it over to Dennis to make a few introductory remarks.
2: Thank you, thanks Melissa. Um, but so yeah, um, I guess Melissa, uh, I was going <laughs> to- <Yeah>,
1: see? <laughs> you're becoming okay. Betty and Diane, and- <laughs>
2: Mulholland Drive is probably, yeah, one of very few films that I've watched within, like, twice within the first 24 hours. I just, I felt compelled. I felt like I had to go back to kind of figure it out, um, and I think that was one of the main compulsions for writing this book. Um, I had been invited to submit a proposal for, um, a critical biography on a filmmaker, uh, Lynch came to mind immediately. Um, he's somebody I felt like I, I that it would be worth spending some time with, um, trying to figure out. Um, and I think having written the book, um, I can say that I think it was probably the right decision because in some ways he is, to me, an inexhaustible subject. I don't feel like I've really depleted the films in any way. I feel like the films, you know, there are some filmmakers I think if you, st- especially if you're in academia and if you study somebody and you just watch something over and over again, it just sort of like takes the pleasure out of it. Um, but for me, I, I've, I spent a lot of time thinking about Lynch and I spent a lot of time rewatching his films. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to go back to the films um, and there's still something about them that is exciting.
1: When you were trying to map out a sensibility of a very singular artist, um, how difficult was it, especially when the term lynchian has almost become completely evacuated of meaning? Because if it's applied to such preposterous examples as Susan Boyle, Louis Vuitton, or perhaps most absurdly, Quentin Tarantino, (laughs) uh, does does the adjective, does the descriptor still have any potency?
2: I guess there was a question that I was trying to to work through um, in writing the book um, and i i I, d- I started I think with this um the excerpts are from the first chapter of the book um, and probably the first thing that I wrote that I was kind of happy with at least um and even though the the task the assignment was to write a critical biography I, I saw it more as like writing about a sensibility like a biography or an anatomy of a sensibility um, because I really wasn't um, Interested or really equipped to be the person to like dig around, um, and it's always challenging to write a biography of a living person. Um, I read other like biographical texts on Lynch, and I didn't really feel like I needed to do like cradle to well, not grave, is not dead, but you know, like year by year chronology um, of what happened. So th- this idea of the Lynchian was always the starting point for me. Um, I agree. I mean, and I think the point I'm trying to make here is that it is so all purpose and so, so readily applicable to so many things, but it is also the fact that it's also evocative of something, the fact that it also the fact that even exists, the fact that somebody who made 10 feature films, some of them very weird and very, you know, very uncommercial, even means something in the popular culture seemed worthy of investigation.
1: Mm And you've interviewed Lynch at least twice,
2: three times. Um, and uh, once was in person for uh, Mulholland Drive. Um, and
1: was it during that interview that you asked him that quite was directly the, that, to, yeah. do, to define Lynchian? Yeah,
2: it was very naive at the time. Could you describe that, that, um, ex- that? Yeah, I quoted uh, some of that in the book, and I think he was uh, very—he was not pleased by that question. I think he didn't want um, the fact. I mean, you know, he was like. The, the, I think the line that I quote is like he w- something about like, that's like, um, what's the donut? Th- keep your eye on the, ho- keep your the eye on I the donut l- and not the hole or something. It was like some, something that a friend of his told him, like, y- you know, that's the wrong question. There's a question that focuses on the hole and not the donut. So I had asked the wrong question. But, you know, um, he, um, that was when I asked him to to define uh, Lin and... That was my first encounter with him. I think Chris Rodley's book had already been published. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. I'm not sure. Um, and obviously, there was some you know, writing on Lynch. And I knew he was resistant to um, just this over interpretation or analysis of his work. But I don't know. I, I just thought I really wanted to get into it with him. I brought a copy of um, a, a, a book that Slavoj Žižek had just published, On Lost Highway, wow. to give to Lynch, which I'm sure he was absolutely horrified by. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was um, you know, I don't there I actually used quite a few quotes from the interview because like as they're they're not nec- they're not meaningful or like informative in a conventional sense, but I think they're telling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent a bit of time with this in the book too like Lynch's you know, speech, Lynch's language, the way he talks about his work which like is is seems determined to thwart interpretation, but that in itself um seemed like something to, you know, worthy of um exploration. Um, yeah, so I interviewed him that for uh, Mulholland Drive, and I interviewed him for Inland Empire. Mulholland um, Drive, I did a piece with The Voice, and Inland Empire I did a piece with the New York Times. Um, and then I did a, f- uh, a, a reasonably long phoner with him, actually, um, a few years after that, because I was writing a piece on his very good friend, Jack Fisk, um, who's a great production designer, who's worked with um, Paul Thomas Anderson and Terrence Malick. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I talked to Jack And then to David about, like, a little bit about their time um, as uh, friends in, you know, the 60s, um, growing up together in Virginia and also going to art school together in Philadelphia. Um, So I interviewed David on three occasions. Did not interview him again for the book because he didn't want to do another interview. He just, you know, he's not really a big fan of, like, book projects on, him, but he was very supportive in the sense that he he told Jack that he could talk to me. He told m- many other people like Fred Elms and Peter Deming to feel free to talk to me. So in his way, he's been supportive of the project. But um, I totally understand, um, you know, especially given uh, his relationship with language and interpretation, mm-hmm. how why he would not want to do that. Um, and actually, having r- I, one of the things I did was I read almost every interview I could find and. Mm-hmm they are so repetitive. And right. he really says the same thing over and over again. I'm really not sure I would have gotten anything new. Um, I think Chris Rodley's book is great. Um, you know, they obviously had a rapport, and Chris, I think, did that interview over several days. Um, you know, and it was, it's, it's still a definitive text. I, I, I cite it a lot in the book.
1: Right. Well, speaking of the Chris Rodley book, which is called Lynch on Lynch, and was revised in 2005, I believe and a portion of which is excerpted in the Criterion Collection's beautiful new Blu-ray of *Maholan Drive. There's a, a line that Rodley uses, which I think is is really quite powerful, and that is um, words are Maholan Drive's enemy. And I wonder if that observation could perhaps be applied to all of, or his, Lynch's entire corpus. And if that's the case, you know, y- your work is, is a work of critical interpretation. I would imagine that was posed particular challenges or maybe it was in some ways oddly liberating.
2: I would say both. I mean, in, in he's, um, yeah, it's hard not to, not to, to have that kind of ringing in your head when you're writing about Lynch. Um, and you know, there's a thing, I don't think I actually use this in the book, but there's a quote he from the 2001 interview which I used when I was sort of crafting an excerpt of the book that ran in The New Yorker, um, and when he told me like, it's real, ta- talking is really dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and that again has this like, this almost superstitious view of like, don't talk about the work, don't explain away its power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, don't, I think for me, in attempting to explain the work to some degree, um, I think it it's became clear to me that I don't think it's possible to explain away the power. Mm-hmm. of Lynch's films um, I, I I still f- I still return to the work like with you know having lived with this for a couple of years I still return to the work as I said earlier and 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 and, and still am completely like excited and captivated and surprised even at films I've seen many many times mm-hmm. and you as uh, somebody who's watched Mulholland Drive in record-breaking numbers <laughs> <laughs> have you seen it like a uh, I you must how many how at many least times? 30
1: Okay. So and you know. it'll be 31 times next Saturday the right. 19th okay. across so, the street of Walter Reed. So
2: you know, I mean there's yes. you know and I think um and I think it's it's interesting. I mean like you know w- what does that say about the work and w- maybe what does it say about the writing about the work, you know, that it's so difficult to really um demystify. Uh, maybe that is one of its strengths. Um and I do agree to some degree that words are Lynch's enemy, in the sense that in writing the book, I found that it was very difficult to write about Lynch. Mm. Um, I, I didn't find, uh, there's been a lot of good, I mean, I think the best books on Lynch are Lynch on Lynch, which are really, it's just a, a very smart interview that's basically just all Lynch's words. Um, and then if you, you know, what what other books on Lynch, you know, that I would actually recommend cover to cover? I don't know that there are that many, His his own book, which is fascinating, but I wouldn't say like a revealing or great book, Catching a Big Fish, which is about his creative process and about meditation. Um, I quite like the French critic Michel Chion's book on Lynch, um, but it hasn't been updated and I don't think it really deals with the second, l- the final third of the, you know, the r- most recent third of Lynch's career at all. Um, so it seemed to me like why, why aren't there more books on Lynch that I've really responded to that have like really, you know, um, and I found that to be, uh, I think a lot of the writing on Lynch is um very vague. And I think that has to do with, you know, this what I was trying to get at in this the the, the portion that's excerpted in that video is that this idea of the Lynchian is so vague and so amorphous and so large um mm-hmm. and I think there's something about his work that encourages vague writing because mm-hmm. like these are very like, you know, the, the sensations he that he evokes are large and kind of uncontainable and and possibly vague and and I think a lot of the writing on him defaults to that. Um, it's an easy way. I mean, I think you know to to just call him weird, to call surreal. the films surreal. Yeah, all those you know. And um, I thought it was a challenge, you know, to maybe write to some degree concretely about the films. Um, and the thing I kept coming back to, at least, I don't I don't give every single film equal attention in the mm-hmm. book. But I think there's the films that I really spend time with. What I kept coming back to was my relationship with what was on the screen. Like how, you know, how, it, the experience of watching Lynch's great films are so specific. Um, and I felt like, you know, maybe start there. Maybe start mm-hmm. by trying to evoke those ex- those reactions and try to dig into that because I feel that was one reason I was compelled to write the book. Why are the films so potent? Um, and what are they tapping into in us?
1: Well, uh, your your book is endlessly quotable, but but one observation that, I'm really struck by, and that gets at just how fast or how uncontainable the responses he can trigger in us are is, is I'm gonna quote you directly, um, in Lynch's world, the mere fact of existence and of consciousness can be cause for terror. I mean, it does not get any more irreducible than that. Just being in the world is totally destabilizing isn't it I mean. yes <laughs> this very experience is leaving me unhinged um but so with that in mind can you tell us about your your very first encounter with lynch and did it terrify you
2: It scarred me for life probably um <laughs> i think it's just you know it was blue velvet i was probably too young how old 13 maybe or um it was on vhs so it was like a and um uh, 13 or 14, um, VHS, uh, and the, you know, the weird thing about the VHS of Love is like a, a good third of the image is missing, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's just like pan scan, um, and it's a widescreen film, and, um, I think watching it and not really knowing, not being able to explain what was going on, uh, feeling that you didn't quite grasp it, um, Did you, were you
1: watching this by yourself at yeah. home?
2: yes. Early days of VHS, very, um. And uh, yeah, I think um, it's a film I keep coming back to in some ways. I I don't I haven't it's not it's not my favorite Lynch film even, but it's just like obviously significant as my first, you know, as the gateway. Um, right. But it's a film that was um, besides being somewhat um, exciting and frightening, and I think fi- it's a film that really puts you in the place of Jeffrey. I think it's a film that really, like, unlike many, you know, I think it's a coming of age film that really tries to make you endure that rite of passage. You're supposed to be excited, you're supposed to be horrified, and you're supposed to be confused. And for me, confusion is a defining like kind of experience of, of watching Lynch. Um, and I think the fact that, that that film made such an impression on me has always, I, I, that's a touchstone, you know, for me in the sense of just knowing how important it is and how like to not really be maybe afraid of confusion. Confusion is a really productive state to be in. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that there, there are things to figure out um, and uh, there's something very exciting about that. And I think the f- that's what the film is about in some ways.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and this idea of confusion, um, I th- it's interesting you were, were talking about a lot of books about Lynch are marked by their vagueness. But Not so much, I
2: should clarify on that. I mean, like there haven't been that many books. Actually, the, I, 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 maybe I should probably say, like, the vagueness or like over-specificity you know, like, kind of, like, this, uh, there's been a lot of books published on Lynch, and I do get a lot out of them. Like, um, there's been a, l- if you just look at any, like, ac- there's, like, just many, many academic studies right. of Lynch, right. which to me seem overly narrow, mm-hmm. um, overly, you know, just determined to, uh, to apply one lens to the work. Um, I mean, psychoanalytic, you know, theory, Lacanian, very popular. And some of those mm-hmm. books are very good. But, I you know, I was writing a book for a popular audience, and I also wanted to... I guess just to insist that you can apply different lenses. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be steeped um, in, in in the jargon and the terminology to really understand this work because this is this is work that has you know you know penetrated the culture. Right. So it's um, it doesn't. So I guess my it's maybe the journalism on Lynch I, as I, you know, did like a where I read all the reviews of the films as they came out. And like, there was just a lot of vagueness. And there's this, this very, the line that y- you constantly defer to this, like this line of like, he's the weirder who makes the weird films. And like that, that seemed to just keep coming up over and over again. And a large part of that is also the persona of Lynch, which is something I, you know, get into and something that's been oddly kind of cultivated in a way. I mean, like he's, you know, I think he's genuinely an, ex- an eccentric guy. Um, but he's also been very good and, and, I think, very smart at performing that in, in, oh, in, sure. in, in public, you know. And I think how that feeds into the reception of the work um, is interesting.
1: Although we've just discussed the fact that um, Lynch is averse to over-explaining things. Um, in his interview with Chris Rodley, he did say something that I think is quite extraordinary about Mahalan Drive. And what Lynch said was, I think most people know what Mahalan Drive means to them but they don't trust it, and that has made me think about uh, when the film came out, and this is something you discuss in your book, both from Mulholland Drive and during the, the height of the Twin Peaks craze in 1990. It seemed that the most that the most zealous fandom was about parsing the minutia, about looking for clues, which I mean, of course, it's. I'm, we're not here to question anybody's fandom, but it did seem, it can seem to be a way of not letting s- very emotionally profound works that are difficult to, m- to pin down really penetrate you, I guess, in a way.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I wasn't so interested in like kind of symbolist readings of the right. film, or like, you know, that were just like, what does the Blue Key in Mulholland Drive mean? What is the horse in Twin Peaks? I mean, like you know, there's like there's and there's tons of websites that are devoted yeah. to like just parsing all of that, and it's great. And I looked at a lot of them, but I d- actually didn't even introduce any of those into the book because right. I kind of don't really care.
1: Right, and as you said, there are plenty of URLs that will direct you and and to.
2: Yeah, and, and I, I think you know maybe that because that's just how I'm not I'm I'm really not in maybe inclined to read films or any I guess narrative works that way necessarily. I kind of. I, and I think this is what Lynch, you know, he's, he would prefer them to be as open-ended as possible. I mean, he would never say, oh, yes, that's, that's you know, your interpretation is right. And, and, um, but I think these films, like Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks, obviously, there was a, you know, solution, so to speak, to the murder mystery. And, and Mulholland Drive is a puzzle that more or less adds up. Um, but when Lynch tries something like Inland Empire, which does not in any obvious or easy way add up, I mean, which is also like uh, something that is full of clues and can be pieced together and it's not linear. Um, I I think that's people, he loses some people when he tries something like that. Even Lost Highway, which I think is a fairly like airtight film narratively, was like, if you look at the review, people were just completely baffled by the film and like, you know, this. um, So I think um, it's, people like the, the puzzle aspect of some of the films, but I think they also are a little bit pissed off when there are no like clear solutions.
1: Well, b- both you and I have been compulsive rewatchers of Lynch and you remark in your book that what united uh, the fans of Twin Peaks was that they wanted to continue existing in this world. Um, and I'm wondering if you think that there are any other directors working today who are as as skilled in creating these universes that we either, that are, that are both simultaneously deranging and inviting, that we want to inhabit somehow, or we want want to re-enter time and time again
2: I can't say Jacques Rivette no
1: Well, that would be a beautiful segue to my <laughs> next question
2: um i don't, um today um uh,
1: well okay, not today uh within well I mean like fifty or sixty years
2: um, well, actually today i uh, i pitch up on we were up cool for me is sort of like a, a a believer in like kind of stories as worlds to inhabit i think there's something very lynchian about his films too um he's i know for a fact a a, a big lynch fan um so yeah um as i th- he comes to mind
1: well and you you just mentioned jacques Rivette, um who is best known as one of the architects of the French New Wave, and who, on the surface, you could think, what could he possibly have in common with David Lynch, but you and Dan Sullivan have put together this very ingenious program where Lynch and Rivette are in conversation with each other. So why did you decide to bring these two directors together?
2: Do you want to show clips first, or no? Should we just, Uh, I can answer that before we Yes, please answer, and then I'll Um, have something to say. All right. I guess we were, I was talking to Dan about a year ago, um, having finished, having just, I think, delivered the manuscript, and being like, oh, we should do something on Lynch. I actually wrote to Lynch's office, um, and they were like, he can't participate. He's going to be busy with Twin Peaks for, like, two years. He's not doing any appearances, probably unless they're TM or foundation-related. So, you know, I was like, "This is probably very unlikely that we could get David out to do a retrospective, and it seemed like it just wasn't quite... um, interesting enough um, and I also wanted to maybe you know having really been in Lynch's world for a year maybe like step out of it and uh, Rivette is not something I really I don't really talk I don't really compare Lynch to other filmmakers very much in the book but I think I Rivette think. comes up twice R- Rivette comes up a couple of times and I had written a piece on Celine and Julie go boating for the Times um, a few years ago when it was um, re- restored and re-released and I I sp- Weirdly, I, I wrote a par. There was like a whole paragraph in a rel- not very long Times piece on Lynch, and I remember th- my editor wanted me to take it out, and I was just absolutely adamant that it had to stay in, because there was something. that like, I was like, no, this is this is important. Like mm-hmm. there's something. I don't remember what exactly I said, but like there was something about like trying to you know talk about Rivette's spirit and 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 where it where it resides today, and to me like it, it Lynch is like the sort of like the lost you know. Um, Kindred spirit in some ways, like um, not a whole lot has been made of this connection, and that seemed, um, yeah, I think I just mentioned had I think Dan had read the manuscript, and I mentioned it in passing to him, and he was like, we should do something, and then you know we were just um, you know throwing around ideas, and I th- I think it was at PJ Clark's, over a drink or two, and uh, we came up with several pairings that made sense. Mm-hmm. So we thought we would just pursue it, and um, we found I think a few pairings. These aren't these are not definitive. There's not going to be like one-on-one correspondences. If you see like you know, Duell and Lost Highway, you're not going to be like this is exactly you know, Lynch had Duell in mind. I mean, Lynch probably hasn't even heard of Duell. Mm -hmm. But um, we wanted these double bills to be um, just open actually Mm -hmm. and very suggestive. Um, and some of them have like kind of plots that are overlapping and obviously, you know, certain motifs that recur and that are mirrored in the films. And some of them are paired more for like, you know, I would say just for the mood of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that was why we decided to do it.
3: Speak briefly about, you started with this statement um, that language can be dangerous. Maybe he feels this way. But just about words and dialogue and Uh, language in his films because I guess what appeals to me about his films and other films is that they're not tied down to the script in this very literal way that so many movies are where the script is the primary thing that you're following and they're just you're just making a film on top of it to show the script I feel like he's freed himself somehow from that like a lot of great filmmakers I just wonder if yeah
2: no I completely agree I think words in Lynch don't have the usual function of like exposition and moving the story along and i think um he uses words for sound as you know as much as for meaning i think the sound of the words the way something sounds is as much the meaning as anything else um i think you get that in these very like in slightly stiff and stilted lines that he you know in in his films that are often delivered by stilted actors, <laughs> even. Um, and I, I think, um, yeah, I think it's a very particular and unusual use of language. And I think you see that in the way David speaks, too. Um, I think there's a very, um, he has an odd relationship with language. And I think, you know, I get into this in a book, like uh, The Alphabet, one mm-hmm. of his early short films. is about being terrorized by the letters of the alphabet. And I mean, that's pretty, like, not so hard to analyze. Um, and he's talked about how he was pre-verbal at a certain point you know, in his life and like, didn't really like to talk very much. Um, and I think it's just the sense of like, thinking that words close off meanings, you know? And I think, um, and yeah, for him, that's, that's almost the worst, worst thing you could do.
1: Dennis, your words do nothing but open <laughs> up meanings. So
3: thank you so much. Thank you, thanks all thank for Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks. For- Hi there, this is Alison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theater is turning 25 next year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theater in New York. Manola Dargis of the New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long-overdue renovations that will make this great theater even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16mm projectors, updated lighting and sound systems and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the Walter Reed will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org/WRT25.
0: Son of Saul follows a Hungarian-Jewish Sonderkommando in Auschwitz, who takes extreme risks to give a young boy's body a proper burial. After its premiere at Cannes, Colin McCabe wrote for Criterion that it is a long time, if ever, since I have seen a first-time film crackling with such cinematic intelligence. And Adam Woodward of Little White Lies declared, we could well be witnessing the arrival of a major new force in Hungarian cinema. After its New York premiere in this year's New York Film Festival, Laszlo Nemes and actor Geza Rohrig joined Nicholas Rapold of Film Comment Magazine on stage in our amphitheater to talk about Son of Saul. Let's go now to that conversation.
4: Good evening.
5: Good evening. <laughs> um, so I, I, I watched it again on Monday, the movie, uh, after having seen it at the Cannes Festival, and uh, it's, uh, it was no less, you know, shocking <laughs> seeing it another time. Uh, and what struck me this time is that what you were trying to do with this movie that is finding a new way of depicting events that we are all in some ways too familiar with, um, what you're trying to do is kind of bring it into the present tense in a way. Um, but that was just something that struck me. I, I, I wonder if you could just start by talking about what your goals were uh with with this the way you chose to represent the movie, to represent uh,
4: the events. Um so I I I usually say that uh I, the the point of origin of the film was when I read about the uh, the Sonderkommandos, actually not about them, but the their texts, the uh the uh, uh uh, manuscripts by the members of the Sonderkommando the crematorium workers uh and uh, these texts were found after the war although we know a lot of texts were not found that were written by them but some were found and and uh, uh these texts took me as a reader into the heart of the of the crematorium the heart of the extermination machine uh i never um, I never really understood uh how you know I tried but I r- never understood why um you know what the process within uh the holocaust was meaning what the individual what what the individual would would feel you know and think uh my assumption was there must have been uh you know a great force you know, pushing the individual into a situation from which there's no, um, uh, there's no not a lot of possibility of of, of of seeing and perceiving the outside. We're we're caught in a in a world without l- a lot of information and uh, and a lot of um, uh, a lot of a lot of information on the on the, the moment that's about to happen so this sort of um uh, th- being plunged in 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 that so i wanted to, i think talk about the individual experience you know uh, um uh imre the hungarian um uh, writer when he wrote uh, uh his masterpiece on uh, on his you know his life when he was deported to auschwitz in the in the final chapter of the book, uh, you know, he comes back to Budapest at a, a after being liberated from Auschwitz. Uh, maybe not from Auschwitz, but uh, from other camp. But he he uh, he definitely went to uh, uh, you know to deportation and and some some different camps. But he came back, and on uh, in, p- in the public transportation, someone would ask him what the hell was like. Uh, what what was it? like in hell and he, he said that he doesn't he, he says he doesn't know about hell he he just knows about you know one one step before another and this step uh, before uh, you know after another one so it's, it's it's just that what what is the process of what is the experience and the of the individual and and I wanted to recreate something very visceral so that the audience Uh, can relate in a more um, intuitive manner to the limitations of the human experience in the concentration camp, the extermination process, and not having this kind of external standpoint that was uh, established uh, in the post-war, you know, common, uh, common corpus or common uh, common way of thinking this sort of external point of view distantiated point of view uh wha- I- as if we you know people inside were should should have known or should have seen uh so it's a f- you know i wanted to uh, i wanted to experiment whether cinema could uh, could take the viewer on a visceral journey in the I- in the- con- in the concentration camp make the making this portrait of a man uh that would be the measure of everything you know and not f- frontally showing uh the horror uh so that's that that was my premise and that was my um my goal
5: i i mean i think what happens by taking the individual perspective as opposed to the the big picture as if one could really have a big picture of these events um, What the individual perspective does is it kind of restores a difficulty to understanding the Holocaust. Um, I mean, you keep a lot of things in the background that other films might put in the, you know, you you get a whole shot of everything going on and, and, and people being killed, but you really keep on the individual perspective, so you have to kind of struggle to understand visually what's going on. And I feel like that is part of a way of making it difficult again to comprehend everything.
4: Yeah, being lost is part of the experience. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, Holocaust films, the usual Holocaust film, you know, making dramatic, you know, historical drama out of, uh, out of this um, actually present a sort of, uh, um, how do you say that, sort of um, combination or universe of different point of views. I, 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 in, in this film, I say there's only one point of view, that's your point of view, you know, where you're caught in the, in the middle of it. Uh, At uh, uh,
5: playing the individual that we're talking about, uh, I mean, how did you, I mean, how do you get in, into that sort of mindset and what ideas of your own did you bring? Because you were also, um, I mean, in, in addition to being an actor, you're a published poet who have written, you know, an extensive body of work writing about um, the subject, so I'm just curious what perspective you brought.
6: Well, um, I myself had a lot of reservations, uh, you know, to make another movie on, on the subject matter. I was extremely frustrated with the genre. Um, and it was a very pleasant surprise uh, finishing the script that that uh, I it was very successfully, it was a very delicate uh, line, you know, to to not to fall into kitsch and sentimentalism, which usually the, the case of, of movies on 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 this issue, but also not going into you know documentarism or or, or some sort of a you know too dry treatment um, of, of the event, and so I I believed. In the movie, I, I was so relieved, finishing the script, to see that this is not your regular confessional point of view, that there is no, you know, an, an another movie that trades with optimism and somehow tries to seduce the viewer into uh, by a false comfort. So my, my point of departure was that, that I really believe that if we admit the, the, the Holocaust on its own terms into our hearts and minds, it will shatter a whole, a lot of our assumptions, silly and unexamined uh, assumptions that we carry from the past about the nature of humanity. So th- the, the the what and the how of of Auschwitz, turns everything inside out. That's that least for me it 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 did. These extermination camps, um, you know, the gassing and the burning of uh, as much as ten thousand people each day, is it, just has such a negative, heavy transcendence to it that nothing, it really challenges everything. To me, it it it, it br- brings everything in, into question, transforms the way I, I saw the world. And it, what I expected, if anyone would dare to make a movie, you know, on the subject matter, is not to dare to try to explain or understand what happened, but to eliminate the distance between the viewer and the screen and just bring in the person, really, as much as art can, into the moment, the here and now, of the Kommando workers' reality. And what? how did I prepare for this role? I, I, I don't think my preparation started at the time when I received the script. Uh, I really felt like, in some ways, I was cut out for this role from, you know, from a much earlier point and um a lots of my aspects i don't want to bore you with you know stages of my life from early childhood on but a lots of my a lots of aspects of my life i i think uh, came into fruition to to bring Saul alive
5: i mean i'm 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 also just curious how you thought through i, I mean i guess there's always this question of People feel differently about art and the representation of the Holocaust. Um, I guess one argument is that art can never represent the Holocaust because how could you represent it? But the flip side is we need art in order to think it through and feel it through. So I mean, I don't. I wonder how for each of you, you know, actually making this movie and uh, how that helped you, you know, think about those ideas and, and feelings.
4: I think I let a start because he always says a very intelligent things so I don't have to say them in a v- uh, no seriously directing already in a more <laughs> in a less intelligent way so
6: I, I I'll do that if you promise that we switch roles after a while <laughs> so I can say something silly as well um, so uh I'm gonna be very honest with you because I'm—I uh, don't know—I'm sick, I'm sick and tired of this whole. I think it's way old school, and just just pass this whole discourse of re- non-representability and all. all. Look, the, the, the Holocaust—the quantum of suffering and, and whatever was presented, the evil um, at Auschwitz—it's obviously, you know, excruciating but come on i mean we, we've been around on this planet and and cruelty and death and dying uh, was always around and 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 who is the person what sort of a censor or grand the grand inquisitor can just simply tell us like what to represent and what not it's ridiculous this uh, i i understand the 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 you know it's the question is legitimate but how can you single out the holocaust wasn't there terrible? things and barbaric things done in history that was painted about and written about, and all of a sudden, right, in the middle of 20th century, stop. You can't represent anymore. It makes no sense to me. I understand the prob- how problematic it is. I understand that you have to create a new language to it, and you have to do it ex nihilo. I totally get it. But the prohibition? I, I, don't, I don't believe in taboos when it comes to art. And besides of that, this whole argument—it's somewhat confused because on the one it says you're incapable, you can't do it, but they also try to come from the moral angle and say, "Well, it might be—you you can might do it, but you, should, you are not allowed to do it." You know, it's, so I, I think that—and the people who are saying this, for God's sake—and I, heads up for Claude Lanzmann, I seriously, I, one of the great masterpieces groundbreaking, but if you really take a close look at Shoah, there is like at least a half an hour representation in that movie too. The the text is saying I went left and right and the camera goes left and right in Shoah. So, let's not be so absolutist and purist on on this issue. The question is really how it is done. That's the question. And, And I think Laszlo found the language something that hasn't been done this especially the aspect of the zone der kommando i, I, I think it's a blind spot of holocaust cinema besides uh, tim blake nelson's gray zone which last me in the third minute when someone is talking with american accented english right in auschwitz which was like there was about 18 languages in auschwitz except one english <laughs> it wasn't even liberated by the americans right so at least we should have done it in Bergen-Belsen. That was liberated by the English or some other. But it's it really like this, Hawaii type of thing, right? In it's just so. In any way, it was a well-meaning attempt. And but I th- I thought that it did not communicate the the, the experience that Laszlo had in mind. Oh, uh,
4: I think it's really a question of how you do it. The I I, I, I think also Landsman uh when he he said things about you know not be having the right to go here and there i think he uh, he wanted to uh to to say that there's responsibility when you uh when you approach such a subject um but uh, but here's a fiction and you know it did um you know announcement found it good and uh and although it's a fiction you know but he he i think i was guided by a preoccupation of of not not necessarily the intellectual preoccupation but the fact that uh we must speak of the dead and the dying in a respectful manner these are the, the people who are being forgotten when we keep making films of of one kind of survival in the, in you know in the in the holocaust in the deportation uh trying to you know describe uh in a frontal way um what 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 was going on so i think it's yeah it's the, the issue of 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 how how responsibly you designed uh but when you when you approach it i think from when we, that was our our goal is to uh, make by making the portrait of one man staying at the level of the individual uh, We would just give the reference the human reference point and from there, you know going through hell uh, Certainly a journey, but but it gives not only the infinity of, the, of hell that takes place, but also the the uh, the potential of the human being so the, the the two work, uh, you know, together.
6: I think it's important to mention that um, in Cannes, right on my left, Claude Lanzmann was sitting, and I was really scared. <laughs> <laughs> and it was at the at the, fir- the premiere, and I. He second screening. Second screening. He got up at the end, and he. Hugged me and he hugged Laszlo and I think he told Laszlo, I, "You're my son," or some something to that effect. Like so, something. right? No. Something like that. Something like yeah. that.
4: Yeah.
6: <laughs> and that was a huge relief, you know, because uh, again, I don't try to mock or ridicule and uh, this concern because the, again, I think most movies that I've seen watered down the issue. They they let the viewer emerge way. Too safe and unscored and if you make a movie about the Holocaust, you should really know what what is it.
4: Yeah, this, the the issue of a safe path for the viewer is something that's that's really bothering. I think, you know, when you establish in a, a very uh, you know um, a long codes a sort of. Um, uh, the safe road for the viewer, you know, you you navigate between the good German and the bad German, and the and the uh, and, the, uh, and the, the Nazi flag and the obligatory, you know, Hitler salutes and you know all, all kinds of elements that did that didn't have to take place in the middle of the camp necessarily but it is all the things that pr- we project just to uh, you know to please the production designer or or or, uh, or also uh, you know but in, in fact to to reassure the viewer So that, that that's uh, uh, I think people sometimes who, make films in historical context, do not feel the historical, the given historical context, but use it as a, you know, as, as a context. You know, just let's make a film that takes place in this concentration camps or that one, because it's a nice, dramatic value, you know, it has a nice, uh, you know, it, it it's a nice background, a ni- nice conflictual situation, but we don't believe in that.
6: Qu- quick question, Nick, you, you are a f- film addict, I assume, uh, right? I thought I was asking so the ha- question. Have, yeah. you, have, you s- have you seen uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour by Alain Resnais? Yes, Aruni? I have, yes. So he he managed to make a movie on Hiroshima without ever showing the mushroom cloud. So you it's don't true. have to get into these iconic things, you know, the swastika, the striped pyjama, right, the yeah. tattoo, you know, the, the, the and, and that exactly i think we intended to 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 do
5: yeah and 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 at the same time you do draw on certain historical texts and and actual events um that so it's grounded in that even if you're not you know explaining that during you don't have someone saying well it's 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 here we are, you know, in, 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 in Auschwitz, and, and there's a rebellion about to happen. Um, could you talk a bit about some of the events that are kind of folded into the film? Uh, I mean, one of the ones that was interesting um, that I didn't know a whole lot about was the, uh, the photographs that were attempted. You could talk about that and maybe other things that you kind of weave into the reality of the film.
4: Yeah, one, one of it, one of them was the uh, the uprising. You know, there was only one uh, armed uprising in in the history of Auschwitz that was carried out by the Sonderkommando members, who were not, you know, who did were not military. They were like civilians, uh, and did still did carry out the uprising, uh, and and I th- we wanted to have the surprising because. Uh, I think we wanted to, uh, um, to to say that you know we're there's a context of uh, of of a, s- a sort of possibility of a revolt, uh, you know, something of um, uh, something going on in the Zonda Commando, whereas the main character has a, s- a different kind of revolt, and it made his you know it it made the interrogation about his revolt more. You're more acute in a sense. But also the, f- the, f- the photographs, the photos are, uh, for me, in, inseparable from, from the texts of the Zonderkommando members. Four pictures were, m- were taken uh, by the Commandos in uh, 1944 uh, at incredible, you know, um, an incredible danger uh they they had to it was very it wasn't very hard to find a camera among the, you know the stuff from the da- deported people, but it was very hard to find negative and and to process it. So it was extremely difficult and they and they they did it and um, they took pictures because they thought that if uh, if the our people is being exterminated, the, and, and in their text they say there would there will be no one left from the people, probably, because they saw you know hundred you know, hundreds of thousands being killed. But will will there be a trace of them? Will there be a you know, for, for the future generations will there be anything? That's why they wrote you know the the text and that's why they tried to take pictures so that they can that they can smuggle down the, the pictures. So I think also the, the 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 it belonged to the to the rebellion and the uh, the resistance that was was taking place within the Um I
5: will be having questions uh, shortly, or or we can just go into the questions now. I suppose <laughs> people seem pretty eager, so. Please, yeah,
4: there.
5: microphones. Oh, yeah, if you could just please wait for the microphone to be brought.
7: When I came out of the theater, I was full of emotion. And then I realized upon reflection that there's very little dramatic emotion in the film from the characters. They are so beaten down, and that the, 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 the use of color, the, um, the, the, the way the sound is, fill in for what would normally be these dramatic situations uh, that make it easy for the audience to, to have some sort of reaction. So I wanted to know how you um, decided to keep this tone in the film, which it's a very, very primitive emotion that we that we see. We don't see those dramatic moments, even when they they could be there. Uh, the, the, everything is flattened on that level, but the, the, the landscape is quite stunning because it is in color. That you that you do get a different kind of emotional response. Um.
4: Yeah, sometimes you in a lot of films you see the uh, the spectacle out of human suffering, especially in you know Holocaust films, and you see these weird colors, the metal colors or brown. Like you see, it's from different planet. It seems like fantasy, you know, fantasy or sci-fi a little bit, because a concentration camp has to be you know like a little uh, either blue or. I don't know brown or whatever. We what we thought is this is a this is a, this is taking place here and now in the film and it's uh it's a building. It's happens to be a crematorium. It's uh you know, it's it's a factory uh that's pretty recently built and um and uh this is uh we wanted to recreate a sort of uh Everyday life, everyday life, kind of, you know, quality to it because it was not, it wasn't taking place on, on a different planet and 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 it we we think that there's we 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 wanted to to have this very raw um, uh, feeling to the film so uh, and all the documents that we read and you know, all the you know all, all the sig- signs. Pointed in one direction that this this was uh, uh, th- this was just a factory. It happens to be a factory of death and something unprecedented, and 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 something unprecedented in a moral way, obviously in the heart of civilization. But it's there's some some kind of simplicity. There's some kind of simplicity. It it's you know the the way people there's no there, there, there's no um, um, there's no, you know, drama all the time. There, are people are being killed where, when there's no ap- apparent, apparent drama, you know, in a way, you know, in silence or or almost silence or almost unknown to, so th- to the a world. Woman reaches out to the world. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But we we wanted to keep all the, you know, and and for the Zonder Commando, we wanted to keep everything pretty low key because we these people were. Are in a traumatic situation, post-traumatic situation. They are, uh, you know, b- burning hun- hundreds, thousands of bodies per day. Sometimes burning their own families. Uh, how, you know, there's they're locked in. You know, how how do you recreate this kind of, uh, you know, uh, closed, closed world that they they that the uh, the shield that they have. Uh, so I I, um, I really w- tried to work with the actors so to uh, to to reach a state in which they were not trying to act, you know, certain emotions or or uh, or be very responsive to uh, you know the things because they 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 had to be on a different frequency, and all the testimonies and even in their writings when they write they say we are. Like, you, we just, we are like robots, you know. We
6: I just wanted to add a comment to that, that it's interesting you mentioned how unemotional, the zombie-like, you know, state of mind the, the zombie commander workers were, but in a very intense symmetry, the same is true about the perpetrators. And that's what uh, I think Hannah Arendt pointed out, and that's why I call Auschwitz in some ways like like a, a archetype of modernity because killing another person, homicide, historically speaking, was always done with passion. And here you have this new brand of killers who are doing it removed from the actual act. They are just pouring the Zyklon B in. They are on a different level.
4: And the desk in, in the bits is different. In the pits, by the pits it's different, right. but yeah, when, when the normal... Uh,
6: yes, and, and so there is this, you know, this whole notion of the, the cog in the machine, the apparatchik, the desk killer, who is, here you have it, someone who is committing, you know, genocide on a gigantic scale, does it in a bored, indifferential way, and does not as accept responsibility for it. It's a new development. You, you didn't have this kind of killers beforehand. You know this. So, so it's interesting. Just like to point out that that type of a coldness is also on the other side.
4: Yeah, and to try to relieve the troops from the, you know, the, the 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 weight of the killings. You know, that that was something that had to be done, the job that had to be done, but we shouldn't put the troops too right. much because it would, it just uh, uh, troubles the troops to, too much.
5: I, d- I just want to quickly mention that this is your de- debut feature, but you actually directed a short film that's almost a kind of precursor to this film. Um, if if you could talk a bit about that, maybe just quickly.
4: Yeah, but people probably haven't seen the f- short yeah, film. No. I, 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 it's, no. I I we did it with the cinematographer and sound designer and production designer. Try to uh, um, uh, we sh- we made three short films together, and and in all of them we tried <laughs> to uh, to tell stories in an organic way uh, in situations. Uh, you know, leaving to the viewer the possibility of 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 using their imagination, of um, of of having a se- you know a secret in 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 this film. So it's not it's at the beginning you're not necessarily know what the end you know what the end you know. I I believe in this kind of cinema. I, you know, I'm I I probably more I'm more sensitive to it. You. To, uh, because for me, cinema has a sort of mystery, and ha- must have some kind of mystery. For uh, because because we have to take the viewer on a journey.
5: Any questions?
1: I was wondering if there were any reactions from any survivors of the Holocaust to your film. Um,
4: well, I don't. Um, I, I, there were reactions. They, they a lot. Um, the ones that are really uh, interesting for me people who didn't want to see the film because they w- thought they would be uh um you know uh, troubled by it or scared actually the and and who eventually saw it thanked me uh because they, they d- it wasn't the film that they expected uh and I'm uh I f- I think that I you know th- you know in the process I could give a voice to people who couldn't necessarily express some things, you know, about maybe not an entire experience, but something hinting at something in there that's not that's not easy to com- communicate, and cinema can do it. I think I'm not saying I I succeeded, but I try to uh, communicate something of the, the, that kind of uh, level.
6: Um, just to add that. Um I think there's a gratefulness from the survivors I spoke with, because there is this growing anxiety that that with, with passing the survivors, you know, um, they were or they are the living link to this event. And you know, history is taking Holocaust back from the window, so to speak. And there is this worry of t- about the younger generations, will they... Really understand the significance of it, and I don't think talking in Europe at least in America, Holocaust denial is a real danger, but holocaust ignorance is, and there are surveys that are really scary people have this knee jerk reaction it's like, "Oh, I know it, come on it's like pfft. but really they they don't know it in in depth and i'm not you know it's it's just again. We are not talking about any sort of parochial issue here. This is not a Jewish question. It is at least as much a Christian question, for God's sake. And if I want to be provocative, I would even say, go that far that I think Christianity has failed the greatest test since its origin by abounding the Jews. Uh, Nowhere else but in the heart of Europe. And if, in 1935, the leaders of the church, or half of them, would have you know, just speak up and said, we are not Aryans. We are Jews in spirit. You can't do that. I mean, we have teachings. We have gospel. We have, this is just not then the whole plan would have collapsed.
5: Uh, I think maybe we just have <clears throat> maybe one more question.
7: So my qu- my question is for uh, Laszlo. Um, Laszlo, can you uh, talk to us about the process or the considerations that you went through in um, casting uh, Giza for the role of uh, Saul Aslander? I mean, the haunting image that's left with me is of the eyes and the kind of the vacuous look. But there must have been a whole lot more process that went on behind that and I'm particularly intrigued to know the answer in light of what uh has already said about uh about his uh his life and coming to this role.
4: Yes, um I uh, the first idea was to cast um uh, an established actor uh in Europe. Uh we had several options and but in the you know, it took us years and years to uh to get the uh, the film financed and could you know, could try to convince people in Europe to finance the film. Uh well, it wasn't easy and we we I think we failed apart from the Hungarians who who the film fund uh supported the film, but we couldn't make it as a co production. And uh in the process, you know, uh I had the time to think and talk with a lot of people the casting director uh uh the, pr- the producer who's here um uh, the uh, uh you know the cinematographer and uh you know I'm I'm from a sort of you know we can call the Bela Star School of Filmmaking um that's um that's o- about not only about craziness it's also about um you know the importance of casting and and mixing, uh, you know, non-professionals and professionals, or or uh, l- less trained professionals and professionals. So uh, so I, I wanted, you know, to have believable faces in the film, and I, I knew I wanted to different, you know, languages. So the the, the whole casting was pretty, you know, hu- a huge process and a European process with many countries involved. But I. For the main part uh actually, there was some point when i w- i i thought of Geza as as this guy has a good face you know and and okay. an interesting character usually this that's the point of you know the starting point let's ask him to do a monologue, so I asked him to send me a monologue and he t- told me a tale. And it was very convincing. We liked it, and we made him come. I, I convinced my producer to uh, to uh, to get get him to Budapest because he lives in New York, and um, and then uh, he came. And we auditioned him for the second role, Abraham, uh, because I didn't have the, you know this. The, there's no epiphany at this moment about you know the man, the man, him being the main character. And it's also very scary to you know for the first time. Filmmaker to have you know, uh, not an established actor. So he came, and in the process of the additions, he also did uh, had to had to switch roles and and do so, and and we looked at each other with the casting director, and so you know there m- might be something more here than the, you know just something different actually, and um, and and actually we found that he you know he was he had something of this of the stubborn quality of the main qua- character the the obsessive um quality of him this um this very physical the physical and intellectual man at the same time well not intellectual mental let's say mental uh, you know A- and uh, and so he he um, we ask him to uh he, we we ask him back we let him go, and then I had to convi- you know i had to convince my producer to uh to get him another plane ticket so we he came back to Budapest and 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 said, "Okay, we're not going with any other actor we 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 know it's risky we know it's uh, uh you know everything is on his face, but you know the interesting thing is that um uh he is very expressive in life on his face uh but not in, n- not necessarily in the movie, you know it's different, but at the same time' it's, it's a micro you know the micro movements actually the possibility of him being you know having all these layers we feel that as, a, as an audience. I think that he's, he has the layers, so yeah, do you want to add something is that, um, is that accurate um,
6: <laughs> <laughs> it 's really? a, p- a pity that you don't know my mother in law <laughs> <laughs> she 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 would agree with you on the stubborn part. Yeah. Um, um, is the, it, was this the last question yeah we should be, okay, should be wrapping I, I, up a I little bit I just really there. wanted to like I made a resolution this morning because this is the last uh, for us appearance in this festival we are you know we are painting very dark colors obviously and I just wanted to finish up with a joke and I think it relates to to, to all this there's a two Jews meet and um, you know they discuss the what's going on in the world and then one is asking the other, um, "Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist?" And the one says, "I'm an optimist, definitely an optimist." He says, "Well, if you are such a big optimist, then why, why, why do you look so miserable?" <laughs> and the other one says, "Well, you think it's such an easy thing to be optimist nowadays?"
5: <laughs> All right, and on that note, <laughs> thank you so much.